0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we thank you that you are so worthy of all of our praises. Lord, we thank you that for eternity we will know and, and learn more of and celebrate who you are and how wonderful you are and how great you are. And Lord, we confess to you that there are many times in this life that we often forget and we, um, we don't esteem you like you ought to be esteemed, Lord. We don't think of you highly enough. And God, I pray this morning as we've sung, your, sung songs that praise your name, as we open up your word, that you would just help us to get a, a, a fuller, greater vision of who you are or that we will live our lives for your glory, that we'll live our lives to praise you, that we will understand that you are worthy of every single moment every single talent, every single thing we possess. Um, Lord, I pray that we'd use it to glorify you. God, I pray that you'd speak to hearts this morning. God, give me the words to say. I pray that your, your word would be powerful. And um, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with everything that's said and done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think about six months ago, I began an introduction to the book of First Peter. And what I decided to do when we were thinking about going to 1 Peter is I thought, you know what, it was really wonderful for me to be able to go through Paul's life in the book of Acts before we read a book written by Paul, the book of Galatians. And so I thought, let's do the same thing with Peter. Maybe we'll just quickly run through some of the highlights of Peter's life and then eventually get to what Peter wrote. The problem is Peter's life has a lot of highlights. There are a lot of very unfortunate things that he did earlier in his life. There are a lot of times he failed. And then as we go look into the book of Acts, we find a lot of times that now it seems like Peter is finally getting it. At the very beginning of this series with Peter, we looked at how Peter was called as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he was called to be a disciple. And Webster's Dictionary defines a disciple as one who accepts, adheres to, and seeks to spread the teachings of another. And so we we think of that, and we think Peter was called to be a follower Someone who would follow Jesus around and hear his teachings and and see what he did and try and be like him, and this whole idea of what a disciple was was very familiar to the first century Jewish mind. They had rabbis, they had teachers, and if you thought that a rabbi was worth following, if you wanted to be like that rabbi and learn from them, then you would approach them and you would ask, "Is there any way that you know I could I could?" Learn and grow and be your disciple. And what often happened is rabbis would say, you know what? Here's here's the candidates I have, and I like you to, and the rest of you, you can go You know, find a different person. I don't want you to follow me. I don't think you're worthy. Well, in this case, we have Jesus, who is God incarnate in the flesh. And rather than allowing people to come to him and ask him, he goes to them. And he says, will you be my follower? Will you come and follow me? And so he finds a guy like Peter who nobody would ever choose to be a disciple. Nobody would ever think that Peter's the guy. He's a, he's a loud-mouthed fisherman. He is not a, a well-educated, talented, smart person from Judea, from Jerusalem. He's just not the guy you choose. And yet Jesus goes and he finds him. He says, Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. And so Peter leaves to be a disciple. But we find ourselves many times in the gospel is saying, is Peter really acting like a disciple? You've probably heard the saying before, you cannot say no, Lord. You cannot say no, Lord, because if you say no, he is not your Lord. Well, if, if Peter is trying to be a disciple of Jesus, but he's constantly looking at Jesus and saying, no, Jesus, you will not go to the cross. I will not let that happen. No, Jesus, you will never wash me. You will never wash my feet. Jesus, I will never Ever deny you, and then a few hours later he's denying Jesus. I ne- I never knew the man. To a little servant girl, this is Peter. This is Peter who says, "Yeah, I know Jesus. You want me to go back into ministry, but now that you're resurrected, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to my my previous job." This is Peter. I mean, he's a guy who, yes, he's called to be a disciple, but it seems like he's not doing a great job of of accepting, adhering to, and spreading the teachings of another person. And now we get to the book of Acts. And can I tell you something? Part of the sweetness of the book of Acts, I love this book, but part of what's wonderful about it, is we get to see a man who was once a failure as a disciple, now finally getting it, and doing it, and succeeding. He is now truly a disciple. He believes what his Lord teaches, He tries to act like his Lord. And he desires to spread the teachings and the love of Christ to other people. And that's what he's doing in the book of Acts. Now, I want you to listen carefully to the next two statements. I think they're very important. First one is this. Claiming to be a Christian does not make you a Christian. Claiming to be a Christian does not make you a Christian. I checked this week, and 67%, over 67% of Canadians claim to be Christians. Now, I don't know if you live in this country with me, and you read the newspapers, and you see what's going on, and you see sin not just accepted and legalized, but celebrated. You would wonder how 67% of people who live in Canada say, I'm a Christian. It just doesn't make sense. When we look at the world around us, it doesn't seem to be the case. I found it interesting that 83% of Americans claim to be Christians. It just seems way too high when I look at the world around us and what's going on. It seems to me like in our culture, those who have the morality of the word of God, who who build the foundation for the morality on what God said in his word, are considered bigoted and intolerant. In the public square. That if you were a, a Christian who stood up for everything you believed, ultimately you would be ridiculed. Ultimately, you would be labeled as bigoted and intolerant. And so claiming to be a Christian certainly does not make you a Christian because there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not Christians. They they know Jesus existed, they, they say, Yeah, okay, I believe in his existence. I think, you know, I think he had some good teachings. But they have never repented of their sin. They've never put their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them. They've never been born again. The Holy Spirit has never come and sealed them. There has never been regeneration. It's just, I'm a Christian because that's what we are in Western civilization. I read a study this week that said a lot of people who come from China, when they come into the country to try and become a citizen... They assume that means that they're now a Christian. Because in Western civilization, Christianity is the religion, and so once they want to become part of Western civilization, they say, I will just, I'm a Christian, I'll be a Christian. That's just not how it works. And so there might be some people here today who claim to be a Christian, but you're not a Christian. Okay? Second statement Being a Christian does not mean that you're living like a Christian. Okay, this, this might be really obvious, but being a Christian does not mean that you're living like a Christian. And I think for many of us, this is where it should hit home. Because there are a lot of us who are Christians. We, we've trusted Christ. We've been saved by, the gra- by grace alone. And yet, when you look at our lives and we, we look at the things that we treasure and the things that we live for and the things that are important to us, you got, you'd ask, isn't this the same thing as everybody else? desires? Isn't this the same mindset and the same life that the rest of the world is living? How is there a difference between the Christian life and the secular life? There there should be one. And so just just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you're living like a Christian, just like Peter was a disciple originally, but oftentimes wasn't acting like a disciple, wasn't being a true follower. I tell you something? If you are a Christian, you are called to be a disciple. There isn't isn't this big distinction between this person is a Christian, but they're not yet called to be a disciple. When you trust Christ as your Savior, then he expects you to follow him and adhere to what he teaches and try and act like he acts and to spread his love to other people. So that's for every person who is truly a Christian. We should be doing that. This morning, we'll be looking at a fantastic story in the book of Acts. Uh, This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It is. It's a, a clear lesson in it. Um, it's kind of funny. I just. It's a great story, and my hope is, as we look at it, that we'll get a glimpse of what it looks like when a Christian is living the Christian life. So turn your Bibles to the Book of Acts, chapter five. Here, Luke provides, in verses twelve to seventeen, a summary statement of what is going on in the health of the church at this time. So we're going to get a really brief picture of what's going on in the church. And I believe he's laying the context for the story that's to come. Because he wants us to know that things are going really well before things start to go poorly. And if you like to follow an outline as you go through, we're going to see in our text this morning a growing church, a religious roadblock, an angelic prison break, fun, a confused counsel, a silly lecture, and a wonderful response. So that'll be our text this morning, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 32. We'll start in verse 12. This is a growing church. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest... "...durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, both multitudes of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick under the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits. And they were healed every one. You get the picture of what's going on in the church this time? I mean, everything is awesome. It really is, right? I mean, you look at the church, and the church is growing, and and many men and women are being saved and added to the church. And when, when you see the church's position in the culture... It's that um, they're so distinct, they're so separate from Judaism, they're they're preaching Christ and they're so bold about it that there are some people that are afraid to be a part of them. That's the picture we're getting here. There's some people that they don't want to just pretend to be Christians because it's such a distinct difference, but then there are many people who are saying, you know what, I want that, I want what they have, I want to be a believer in Christ. And so they're accepting Christ, being saved, added to the church, and the whole church is... Evangelizing, the churches, there are sick people being saved, healed. I mean, there are many wonderful, wonderful things happening in the church. This might be the greatest, one of the greatest pictures of where the church is at in all of the history of the church. This is just wonderful. Church in Jerusalem is growing, people are being saved. Couldn't get any better. That's when verse 17 happens a religious roadblock. Then the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. Indignation is is envy and this hot anger. And they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. So now you have the high priest and the, the sect, the group of Sadducees, that rise up, and they lay their hands on them, and they throw them into prison. So everything is going wonderful, right? It couldn't be better. People are being saved. And now you have the religious elite, the most important people in all of Judaism. So if you want to understand their importance, uh, um, the religion of Judaism was the most important thing to the people of Israel. And these guys were at the top of that. But not only did they have religious importance, religious uh, authority, they also had political authority. So these are the guys, that the Sadducees, that had the greatest relationship with the Roman government. And so the Roman government would grant them certain liberties and certain certain authority, especially in the temple, to be able to do whatever they wanted to do because they appreciated that if they could keep this relationship good, if, if Roman authorities could keep the Sadducees kind of under their thumbs, then they could keep the people of Israel in control. And so they were religious and political authorities. And these men, the most important men in Judaism, all of a sudden decide that they do not like what's happening in their own temple. The Sadducees were the ones that basically ran the temple. And so now you have them grabbing them and and thrusting them in the prison. And guess what? Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3 and 4, something very similar happened, and they have already been warned not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ ever again. And so this is the the second time that they've been caught. This is going to be a problem for them. Verse 19 and 20 is an angelic prison break. But the angel of the Lord, by night, opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, and speak in in the temple to the people all the words of this life. So here you have, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but have you ever thought like you had an angel with you and, and you had something that happened and you are like, maybe an angel helped or we have our little guardian angels, I don't know if we actually have a guardian angels, but, but you ever thought that, what, what would an angel help me with if an angel was going to help me in my life? I bet most of you wouldn't think, an angel's going to bust me out of prison, right? You know, <laughs> that's what happens here you got an angel that sees these guys in prison, and, and the angel comes and gets them out of prison. And then the angel stands before them and says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to go back into the temple, to the very place you were arrested, and I want you to keep doing the same thing that got you arrested. I mean, that's, that's it, right? I want you to continue to teach and preach about Jesus. I want you to continue to tell people about all the words of this life. And so the, the disciples, I mean, they'd say, hey, Mr. Angel, I appreciate the fact that you busted us out. It's really not comfortable in here. The beds were not nice. But I'm not trying to get myself back in. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to sit this one out. If it's okay with you, I might just go and, and maybe find a quiet corner where I can pray or, or I can, you know, teach my dog about Jesus. Um, I don't think I want to go back to that place where I just got arrested. That would be a pretty rational, normal response, wouldn't it? I want you to go do the same thing that just got you arrested. And you don't even know what your punishment is yet, right? I mean, it's not even, like you're arrested, but you're just sitting in jail waiting for trial. It could be really bad for you. But they're told to go back and do the same thing. And so then we find a very confused counsel in verse 21. And we heard that, They entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So you get the picture. These these disciples go, and they go back into the temple, and they start teaching and preaching about Jesus again. They're doing exactly the same thing. But you have this group, this council who's arrested them, doesn't know that they're out of prison. And so they send a messenger and they say, hey, listen, I want you to go into the the prison and gather these men and bring them because we want them to stand trial before us. But, verse 22, when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, the prison truly found shut with all safety and the keepers standing without the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. So guys, the, the prison is shut up properly. I mean, the guard is still standing there, the, the doors are locked. So I don't understand why, but there's nobody inside. I bet they're pretty worried at this point. What's going on? Verse 24. When the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Means that they're worried about what this is going to lead to. They're worried about what's going to happen. These guys are out. I mean, we're already arresting them even though the people have a lot of respect for them. And now they're out of prison again. What is going to happen? What's going to happen to us? Verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Wonderful. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they fear the people, lest they should have been stoned. So now they they go and they find these guys teaching and preaching, and they've already arrested them, and it seems like the people probably didn't like that very much. But now if you're going to go and arrest them again, even though the people have so much respect for them, the people that want to hear what they're teaching, they're worried that if they go out and take them with violence again, that they'll get stoned. The people will turn on them. This This is, I mean... This is shocking in a Jewish culture to have the, these men who are of such great importance now fearing for their lives. What an impact the disciples must be having there. And so we have, we have It seems like the captain of the host, the, second, the man second in charge in the temple, kind of get these guys' attention. Say, hey guys, can, can you come here? Can you come and talk to us for a little bit? Just come nicely. So, I mean, they they don't even have that authority anymore. So they ask nicely, and the disciples come. Verse 27. "When When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. First of all, what an awesome statement. You have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. That should be the goal. I mean, every, we want everybody to know about Jesus Christ. And so they've had such an impact in Jerusalem that the entire city of Jerusalem knows. In fact, we're going to find out in a second, or we found out earlier, that people were bringing from all around Judea, bringing sick people and, and coming to hear them. It's an incredible thing. And then they say... You're attempting to bring this man's blood upon us. So this is the Sanhedrin council, right? This is the very same council of 70 members who were the ones that condemned Jesus to die in the first place. They're the ones that brought him, that, that had him arrested. They're the ones that brought him in, that arranged false witnesses. And when the false witnesses didn't pan out, they decided that he had committed blasphemy, so they took him to Pilate. These are the same guys. And now they're saying you guys are trying to make it look like we had something to do with Jesus' death. You did, (laughs) right? But what they're saying is, we're worried that if if people accept this man as the risen Savior, that they will see that we murdered him. And if we murdered him, then we're going to have to die. We're going to have to face those consequences. And so they're worried now, somewhat for their own lives, that if Jesus is accepted as the Savior then the ones who condemned him to die are going to be in a whole lot of trouble. And that's them. Verse 29, we have the wonderful response of Peter and the apostles. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and the savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. That's Peter's response. I know you told us to stop teaching and preaching about Jesus. I know we were arrested a few weeks ago. I know we were put in jail for it again. Listen, folks, we know what you don't want us to do. But do you think we should listen to God, or do you think we should listen to you? Keeping in mind that the you is the most powerful people in Israel. And the answer is obviously, we should listen to God. But what they're saying here is that what what this council wants them to do is is contrary to what God wants them to do. And so this is a very bold statement. Peter is just the, the... poster boy for boldness at this point. It's incredible what he's saying here. And so he says, we are going to obey God. No matter what it costs us, no matter who it displeases, no matter who is against us, no matter what you do to us, we will obey God rather than men. And he gives some reasons why they'll obey God rather than men. And he says, first of all, in verse 29, the God of our fathers. And he's pointing back, saying, this is is not just... This God that I've made up, this is the God who is who is. This is the God who is the God of Abraham. This is the God who created us. And this is the God who who is of our fathers, not was of our fathers, but this is the living God who has who has his followers are still alive. It's that God, and he says it that God that raised up Jesus. So it's the God that sent Jesus to be crucified, to die, and then to be raised from the dead. That is the God I'm talking about that God has highly exalted Christ and that he is the prince and the savior. So he has authority and he is the only one who can bring salvation. He's giving wonderful reasons why you should obey God rather than men, isn't he? I mean, he's the God of creation. He's the God who called us as his people. He's the God who sent Jesus to die for us. He's the God who is the prince and the savior and has authority to make someone the prince and the savior. He is the one who will give repentance and forgiveness of sins To any Israelite or any Gentile, we find out later in the book of Acts, who trusts on him, this is who the God is. So we we see in this story, I think, a wonderful demonstration of what it looks like when a Christian decides to live the Christian life. A group of 12 guys say, you know what? We're going to try and do this. We're going to try and obey God rather than men. And this is what happens. And so this morning, in the last few moments together, I want to make one point. Make just one point. And that is that you should obey God rather than men. Peter and his disciples faced great opposition. They faced emotional and spiritual opposition. I mean, you got to imagine how much they were being made fun of, how much when this group looked on them, they just thought of them as dirty fishermen unlearned, ignorant men. They were looking down on them. They're, they're getting placed in the middle of this 70-member council, all of whom have, who have doctorates, looking down on these fishermen and thinking, you are just go back to fishing. I mean, so emotional. They were opposed. Um, spiritually, you've got to imagine that at this point in time, the, the beginning of the church is happening here in Jerusalem. And so like, Satan, is, his opposition is very localized you got to imagine how much Satan would want to destroy these men and destroy the work that's happening and destroy the message going out. And so they're facing emotional and spiritual opposition. They're facing legal opposition. The Sanhedrin isn't just a group of religious people. This is a group who actually has authority to have them um, tortured and beaten and maybe even killed because they were in the temple, so they are on their ground when all this happened. Um, so legal opposition. And they're facing physical opposition. Well we find what ends up happening here, if we continue the story, is that they were beaten and then they were warned against not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. And this whole idea of being beaten wouldn't have been just a kick in the pants. It wouldn't have been a slap on the wrist. Okay, we find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, one of the punishments that's given is something called scourging, where they would whip somebody thirty nine times. It was, the maximum was 40 times, so in order to stay away from more than 40, they would do 40 minus 1. And so you'd get whipped maybe 39 times with this a leather calfskin um, strap. And uh, they would do 13 on your front side and 26 on your back side. And a lot of men even died from this type of punishment. So it was painful. It would be, I mean, it's torturous. And this is what these guys, these men, they face. They face emotional, spiritual, legal, physical opposition. And they decided that it was better to obey God rather than men. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the word of God. Now, we might look at them and say, yeah, it's so easy for us. We don't have to go through all they went through. We don't face all that kind of opposition. And that is true to to a point. I mean, certainly... The way they had it was a whole lot worse than what we have here in Canada. But we do live in a culture that seems to be becoming more and more hostile to Christianity, to um, Christian morality. And as, it, as time goes on, I think we need to be preparing ourselves for whatever might come in the future. There are Christians all over the world today that are already being persecuted. They're already enduring what the disciples endured here. And, and so the response of us should be the same no matter what we face. We ought to obey God rather than men, no matter what the opposition. Far too many Christians are living as though they are not Christians. Just because we show up at church doesn't mean that we're living like we're Christians. Because you give God one or even two days a week doesn't mean you're living as a Christian. A Christian is somebody who follows Christ, follows his example, tries to emulate him, believes what he taught. You can't, don't call yourself a Christian if you're going to reject most of what the Bible says. It doesn't make sense. Christ is the living word of God. So if you're going to follow Christ, then believe what he said and try and spread his love to other people. That is what a Christian ought to do. God does not allow us to give him second place. He never takes second place. It's never like, okay, you have your thing, but as long as I get second, it's okay. It's just not how God operates. God is everything. This world was created for His glory. Now, thankfully, He is glorified by His grace and His mercy toward us. He's glorified as we um, praise Him for who He is and how awesome He is. But understand, I mean, God is for God. He doesn't allow us to give Him second place. The problem with a lot of us is that we say no to God all the time. No, Lord. It just doesn't make sense. We say yes to other things. We make other things practically our God. Right? I mean, you think about it. What, what would signify to somebody what or who God is in your life? Well, it would be the person that you spend a lot of time thinking about. The person that, that, you, that you listen to the most. The person that you act for. The person that you seek to make happy. That would be God. The, the person you seek to please. Do you know who that person is oftentimes in our lives? It's us. So often, the person we're trying to please in our life is us. Uh, I taught uh, in this text on Wednesday, and I asked the kids who we often struggle to say no to. Okay? And I'd say, like, if you're able to say no to God easily, that's a problem. So I said, who do we often struggle to say no to the most? Who do you? Th-? And I said, who do you think I struggle to say no to? And the kids thought it was... Tara, <laughs> they are sure it was my wife. Um, and I guess I, I struggle to say no to Tara. But the truth is, I think the person I struggle the most to say no to is me. It is my desires. It is my comfort. It is my laziness. It is, it is what I want, my selfishness. That's what's the biggest struggle. And so these guys, yes, they're standing before the Sanhedrin Council, and they're saying, we're not going to obey you, we're going to obey God. For us, maybe the person that's standing in front of us, in front of us doing the will of God, doing what he wants us to do, is us. Maybe it's just our flesh, our sinful desires that say, I want this, I want this, it's all about me, and that's why we don't pursue God. Or maybe it is someone else in life. Maybe we make our kids our God. Maybe they're the ones that we think about, and they're the ones that we're trying to find our joy in. Whatever it is, we need to get rid of those weak, pathetic gods And put God on the throne and follow him. One of the greatest paradoxes in all of scripture is this whole idea that when we seek God and we seek him and we lose ourselves, that's when we really find ourselves. When we stop living for our own pleasure, we find fullness of joy. See, this is what we were created to do. We were created to obey God, to worship God, to please God. And we will find fullness of joy when we begin to actually do what we were created to do. And as long as we think we're going to find it in ourselves or in the desires, the the pursuits of the world, we are going to fall so short of that and be so disappointed. And we will waste our lives because we're Christians just not living like Christians. Obey God rather than men. Why? Well, because he's the God of creation. He's the God that created us. He's the God of our fathers. Because he's the one who sent Christ to die for our sins. Because without him, we have no hope. Without what God did for us, we look toward an eternity of punishment for our own sin. But because of what Christ did on the cross, because God sent Christ to die on the cross for our sin, we have hope, eternal hope of being with him. Why should you obey God? Because of the gospel. Because Christ rose again. Because he lives today. And because he has sent the Holy Spirit inside of you to do just that, right? It's not just them. It's not just us doing it on our own. As Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. He said, and I will give you my spirit and he will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So we have everything we need to do this whole deal of obeying God rather than men. So now it's up to us to just say, you know what? I'm going to stop living for myself. And I'm just going to obey God rather than men. I'm going to obey God rather than me, rather than Tara, rather than my kids. I'm going to seek to please God first with my life. And so now we come to the end of our sermon, and it is very easy to say, at least for me at times, man, the Bible's good, you know? There's a lot in here for us. If I did that, it would probably really change my life. What's for lunch? A game on this afternoon? I wonder if I can get some work done at home. Yeah, I'm going to work on that. Oftentimes, we very, very quickly move from seeing what we ought to do to being distracted by the world around us. And so, what I'm telling you this morning, I'm, there's nothing I can do to change you. Um, thankfully, we do have the Holy Spirit. it's hopefully inside of you and, and, and he can work. And so, I, my prayer is that we will not just really quickly see this story and see this truth, that we should obey God rather than men, and say, that's great, what's for lunch? I hope that what we'll do is we'll say, okay, what do I actually have to do? And what can I change in my life? How can I pursue God so that I'm obeying him rather than myself, and rather than our culture, and rather than whatever else? We ought to obey God rather than men. Let's pray.